The British Empire in America had no plan, and it had no center of command. It had no guiding vision, and it had no high ideals. From the British point of view, the American colonies existed to serve one purpose only, which was crudely economic. For that reason, the old regime could not endure. This is an excerpt from a new book by Nick Bunker. It's called An Empire on the Edge, How Britain Came to Fight America. Today I'm talking with Nick. Uh, he is uh, also the author of Making Haste from Babylon, uh, which is a history of the Mayflower Pilgrims, which I've got to read because I like, uh, I like uh, history. So, Nick, good afternoon. How are you today? Well, absolutely fine. And it's great to be with you, and thank you for having me. Oh, absolutely. Well, listen... Um, I got your book uh, a couple weeks ago. I dove into it. Very organized book. Uh, you must have done a hell of a lot of research on this thing. I mean, well, just, well I did. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, tons, tons. A lot of historical facts in here, which is uh, which is cool. I like that. Um, I, I want you to uh, I want you to give a little sketch. This book is uh, what the title says: How Britain Came to Fight America, and this really isn't about the Boston Tea Party in its entirety, which is what most of us uh, remember about that uh, time in history. The Boston Tea Party started the war, blah, 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 because of taxes. But uh, you found out there's a little bit more going on than than just the Tea Party. Why don't you give us a little sketch? Well, the Boston Tea Party certainly features in the book. I mean, it's right at the kind of the heart of the book. It's right in the middle of the book. But as you rightly say, there was a lot of other things going on, too. Uh, what I was trying to do in the book, uh, it, it, the book is what I call a, a tragedy of errors. What I was trying to do was to get right inside the heads of the British politicians who were making the decisions that led to the war and try to work out exactly why it was that they committed those errors and blunders. And what I did was to basically to chart in some detail the, the events of the last three or four years that led to the war, uh, starting in 1772 and ending ending bang on the date in January 1775 when the British sent the orders to uh, the British commander in Boston that, that sent the troops up the road to Concord Bridge. So basically what I'm doing is I'm taking this three or four year period and I'm charting what actually went on in the, in the minds of the British politicians and trying to get inside, as you say, the, the motivations and the kind of mindset that led them to this really pretty disastrous war. The French were here before the British, correct? Uh, well, uh, well, in places, yes. Yeah. French were certainly there in, uh, in the Mississippi Valley, mm-hmm. and they were there up in the uh, yeah around the Great Lakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, not so much on the eastern seaboard, which is where the British were strongest. Okay, so the French were kicked out, let's say. Um, That's right, yeah. yeah. Basically what happened was that the French and the British had come to blows, really not about America, actually. The way they were coming to blows is really about issues in Europe. But there was a kind of knock-on effect, which was that having come to blows in Europe, then obviously the French and the British also came to blows in North America. And 1763, Treaty of Paris, the French are basically kicked out of what is now the United States. They still remained, uh, well, the Spanish and the French still had some kind of vestigial uh, settlements down in, uh, in, in what is now Louisiana and in the West Indies. But essentially, yeah, French out of, out of what is now the United States from 1763. And... At that time, if I understand correctly, um, Britain was Britain was on the move to capture new lands all over the world. They they uh, they were in India at this time, weren't they? Didn't they? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The British didn't really have a kind of a great big grand plan to dominate all these different countries, but Britain was a pretty dynamic place, and it had contained within it a lot of pretty dynamic people. Mm-hmm. And they did indeed, by the East India Company, go out and take control of a great big slug of India. And they were also 
expanding in, in other parts of the world too. But India and America and the West Indies, those are the, the really important areas for them. Right. And, and so we're talking about the trading, obviously. Um, trading with uh, Britain uh, allowed them to put their feet on the ground in, in these different areas. Uh, yeah, that's India. right. The, East, the really important element in this, in this whole equation was the East India Company, which yes. was a gigantic great British private company mm-hmm. of traders who controlled the trade in silk and tea from India and from China. Right. And what they were doing, they were basically importing this stuff into Great Britain. The government was, was obviously earning a, a kind of a tax revenue on the customs duty as the stuff came in. The East India Company was bringing all this tea and, and silk into England and then hoping to be able to sell it. Now, the problem was that in 1772, there was an enormous banking crisis in Great Britain. The banks were on the verge of failure. The East India Company was on the verge of failure. And the East India Company ended up with these vast quantities of tea in its warehouses that they couldn't sell. Hmm. And that was how the Tea Party came about, because the solution they came up with was, well, let's ship it all over to America. So what brought to the forefront the conflict, the friction between the colonies, the, the colonials, and, and Britain? Now, Britain really didn't govern America at the, that time, did they? I mean, they didn't really have anybody here as, as governor, or did they? Uh, or were, were, well, we, left, well, were we left on our own? Well, it, it's a bit, it depends which colony you're talking about. There were okay. 13 colonies. Yes, now, yes. <laughs> in some of those colonies, there was a royal governor whose yeah. job it was to supervise what went on. In some of those colonies, on the hand, there was a governor who was elected by the people. Mm. And in one or two strange places, basically Pennsylvania and Maryland, there were what they called proprietors, which, which basically means these colonies were owned by individuals back in the United Kingdom. And so each of the 13 colonies had its own system of government, and they also had colonial assemblers who also wanted to intervene as well. So, yeah, the British overall, the British certainly controlled things like, for example, the customs service, you know, the customs duties charged on goods imported. But no, they didn't control the, the individual workings of the individual colonies. And the colonies all had their own individual internal dynamic which the British kind of had a pretty dim grasp of. The British didn't really, from London, have much of an idea about really what was going on inside each individual one. So then the colonies, they soon realize that Britain really doesn't give a crap about (laughs) anything going on in the colonies. Uh, What was really going on? What brought us to the fight between uh, Britain and the colonies? You know, I I grew up thinking that it was a tax that uh, Britain had uh, placed on the colonies. Um, There was really no... uh, um, in the 13 colonies as a uh, as a population there was well 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 that, that's correct that is correct yes mm-hmm. indeed it was the case the british were essentially trying to impose a degree of taxation on the colonists mm. and they started that first of all in in the middle of the 1760s with with the famous stamp tax which they tried to impose right. and then later on they tried to impose also taxes on tea and, and other things yeah that that is absolutely right that's what the british were trying to do but that in itself didn't really necessarily have to lead to a, a, a revolution because the British were, were not totally unrealistic. The British didn't think they could gain vast amounts of money from Americans by way of taxation. It was more the principle they were concerned with. They wanted to establish the principle that Americans had to pay tax because if there were another war with France, mm. which was always what the British were worried about, another war with France, mm. they wanted to make sure the Americans paid their fair share. So it was really a matter of principle, really, rather than the actual amount of taxation. Now, the difficulty was that, of course, first of all, Americans quite rightly said, well, why should we be taxed out representation? That was a perfectly reasonable thing to say. Mm-hmm. But also that there were these kind of episodes of lawlessness that used to go on up and down the eastern seaboard. You know, smuggling has been the major problem, which really antagonized the British. I mean, the British 
could have perhaps been a bit relaxed about the taxation, the actual enforcement of taxation. What they couldn't be relaxed about was this kind of lawlessness and criminality that the British perceived on the part of smugglers and so on up and down the eastern seaboard. And it was that kind of lawlessness and criminality which the British perceived, which led the British to begin to take a hard line. So what, um, what, was, uh, what ignited uh, the whole uh, upheaval? What, what, was, what was one major factor that the American colonies said, forget it? Well, there were two things, actually, rather than one. Okay. Uh, the first thing was an incident in, in Rhode Island, the, the Gas Bay incident in the middle of 1772. Hmm. What happened here was that the, the people of Providence, Rhode Island, uh, many of whom were smugglers, uh, <laughs> deliberately and willfully destroyed a Royal Naval warship called the Gas Bay in the Providence River in Rhode Island. Hmm. Now, that really upset the British in London. It, really, it was something that was completely and utterly illegal from the British point of view, and it was very upsetting to them. And that happened in the middle of 1772. Now, it didn't immediately give rise to a problem because, as it happened, the news arrived in London of the Gaspé incident when Parliament wasn't sitting. And there were other things that the Parliament were worried about. But the effect of that incident in the minds of the British government was to make them think, wait a minute, we are clearly dealing here with a dangerous situation, and so we have to make sure that we will respond at the right. The yeah. next thing that happened, of course, mm. was the following year, the, the Tea Party. Mm. Now, the British had come up with this scheme to, to send the tea over to America, which they thought was a very sensible scheme. But what they hadn't reckoned with was that already by that time, in, in Massachusetts, there was already a huge amount of public opinion that was that swung against the empire. Basically, what had happened was the people of Massachusetts had, had come to realize that actually the British empire wasn't doing, doing a lot for them. Mm. It was supposed to be about prosperity, that was the point of the British Empire. It was supposed to be about material prosperity, mm. and Boston actually and Massachusetts were not actually very prosperous. And that was really the problem, that the Empire simply did not seem to the Americans to be giving them what they needed and what they deserved by way of economic benefit. And on top of that, when the British came to ship all this tea over in an attempt to force the Americans to, to, to pay taxes they want to, then obviously that was like, if you like, throwing petrol on the fire. Um, the tea came from China, right? Yep. Okay. Um, where else did the tea go? Uh, well, it went to Britain. But, well, basically Britain and America. Uh, nobody else really drank tea very much. That's the funny old thing about this. Oh. But lots of tea was imported back into Europe by the Dutch and the Danish and the Swedes mm-hmm. and, of course, the British. The British had the biggest share of the trade. And it was imported in these places, but primarily, almost entirely, it was taken in um, England, Ireland, and Scotland and America. Mm-hmm. In, in France, for example... Tea was not regarded as kind of an everyday drink. It, they used to think of it in France as being like a kind of a form of medicine, hmm. but they didn't drink it for breakfast in the way that we do. Oh, okay. So that's why Ireland, Scotland, England, and the care. Okay, I got it. I got it now. All right, so here's, the, here's another question, though. Um, uh, we're getting pissed off over here. Um, Britain's not doing what they're supposed to be doing. There's no uh, real uh, love between the two. And uh, so... Britain says, okay, you're out. Um, didn't they know that the French would ally with us? Well, initially, you see, in, in 1774 and five, when the British were considering military action to, to quell the rebellion in Massachusetts, mm. no, they didn't. In fact, the British at that particular point thought the French were going to be going to just dormant. And there were some reasons for that. It was partly because at the time, the French were going through a bit of an economic crisis. Mm. The French were always going through economic crises, but there was a particularly severe economic and financial crisis in France in 1774 and five. So the British didn't think the French were actually going to intervene in any way. 
And also, the king, the French king, Louis XV, had recently died. And he'd been replaced mm-hmm. by a new king, Louis XVI. Mm-hmm. And again, the British felt that the new king, Louis XVI, was, was unlikely to embark on some kind of military adventure because he was very new, he was very young. And he actually seemed quite friendly, too. So the answer to your question is no. It, and initially, the British did not think the French were going to wade in and intervene in the way that he eventually did. If the British had thought that, they might not have decided to... Uh, to, to use the army in Massachusetts. And then we wouldn't be talking right now. <laughs> well, yeah, well, yeah. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy. Um, Nick drove you to write this book. You know, your other book about the uh, the pilgrims, boy, is, is something that I really uh, uh, held on to as, as a child. I like, I like history. I like historical fiction. Um, you know, you've written two books here about uh, Britain and America. Are you writing as a Brit, or are you writing as an American, or who who are you writing as here? I mean, why why are you even doing this? Well, I hope I'm writing as just an objective, disinterested person. I mean, trying to get at the truth. But well, in in my case, I mean, my interest in American history goes right back to when I was uh, when I was a child. I mean, uh, in those days, and I'm I'm getting pretty ancient now. I'm 56 years old. But oh yeah, days, you're ancient. The, you're ancient there. Yeah, back, <laughs> yeah, back in the back in the 1960s <laughs> in the old days. Yeah. In the, back in those days, if you watched the television as, as I did as a child in, in England, mm-hmm. we saw every night we saw dramatic images from the United States. I mean, you know, one of my earliest memories is the assassination of President Kennedy. Yes. Um, after that, we had the Vietnam War. We had the, the space program, of course, which was kind of very inspirational. Yes. And then later, we had the Watergate business. Now, yes. these things together are a pretty fascinating group of events. And I, as a child, I was watching these on the television every night, and that was really what induced in me this kind of um, fascination with the history of, of what is now the United States. Uh, and, and where, you, you know, bef- before we got on air here, uh, you, you've done a heck of a lot of research on this. I mean, I just the, the amount of footnotes, uh, the amount of material that you must have read uh, to get to this, uh, uh, it blows me away. I mean... Uh, because you've got some, you've got some pretty historical, you know, you've got some accurate stuff in here. And does your mind work like a historian, or just a, uh, you know, just this little child with this interest uh, that you? That you well, <laughs> no, I, mean, you know. I, I do try to approach it in a pretty scientific way. I mean, yeah. now one thing, of course, I was a journalist, you know, for, for a big newspaper, the Financial yes. Times in yes. London. And if you work for the Financial Times, which is not just your average newspaper, it's a newspaper that is very committed to accuracy and is very committed to analytical rigor as well. You know, I had some kind of training working for the Financial Times, which I think was absolutely ideal in terms of preparing me to write history as well. You know, I also say that, I would also say this, I mean, yeah, I do, I, I, I tend to be very, very, I try to be very, very careful about factual accuracy and chronological accuracy and accuracy in kind of all dimensions. Uh, because the first duty of a historian However well or badly you write, the first duty of a historian is simply don't make factual mistakes. You know? And um, and do you approach life this way? I mean, do you approach work and everything else with this kind of dedication and uh, analytical uh, thinking? I mean, wh- wh- well, what, do you, well, what are you all about, man? What are you all about? Are you really... Uh, uh, you know, this guy that likes to, uh, you know, you're into weapons, or what do you do, uh, uh, what do, you do in the free uh, time? Well, I have dogs. I love, I love my dogs. I have two great big dogs. 
Uh-huh. And I live, I, I don't live in London, you see. I live outside London. I live in Lincoln, which is about 150 miles north of London. Ooh. And the reason I live here is because although it's a, it's a cathedral city, mm. you know, we've got countryside around about it. And my, and my particular interest, apart from history, is the countryside. Uh, you know, my dogs and... Uh, I like uh, you know you know farmland and and woods and, and fields and that kind of thing, and my wife you know who lives here with me of course uh, she feels the same way you know we we basically are, are dogs and country people oh, and one of the reasons of course I, again another reason why I'm very fond of the United States and why I go to the United States so often is that of course the United States has the most fantastic landscape you know I mean you've got probably the best topography uh, in the world mm. and you know America is a very outdoors place and that's what suits me too. Yeah, yeah, I, I would tend to agree. I would tend to agree. You were this book here, an Empire on the Edge, uh, uh, was a Pulitzer Prize finalist. And um, yep. how does that happen? I mean, how the, you know, there's a lot of neat stuff out there. I've, I've read some really cool stuff. And how how does one get how does one get on the on the list? Number one. And then you also won the uh, George Washington uh, Book Prize also. Yeah. So how, well, I'll tell you exactly what happens, Greg. Yeah, the please. publishers submit books for these prizes. I mean, the way, I, mean I, I don't know chapter and verse about this because mm. I leave it to the publishers, but what basically happens is that the publishers submit books, uh, they submit applications for these mm. prizes. Mm. And as far as I know, I think I was told by someone that for the Pulitzer Prize in history this year, there were like 800 applications. That, that, somebody told me that. Um, I'm not sure if it's correct. Wow. And with the other one, the George Washington Prize, yeah, the same thing happens. You know, the publishers submit applications. Uh, and there are lots of applications. Mm. And I have to tell you that I was more surprised than anybody when I came, you know, did as well as I did in, in, these, in, these, uh, in this process. I was absolutely staggered, you know, and amazed when I won the George Washington Prize because mm. I knew there were a lot of other competitors. And I was even more staggered and amazed when I heard the, that I was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. I mean, I was basically like, for the Pulitzer Prize in history, there were like three finalists. Mm. There was one winner and two, and two others who were who, who the also runs, including myself. But mm. yeah, I was pretty amazed by that. I, I certainly did not expect it. Hey, what did you find out about Benjamin Franklin and John Hancock that you didn't know about? I, I, I wouldn't claim to have found anything really new about Benjamin Franklin because you know, Franklin is a, is, a, is a subject that he's been written about so much. Yeah, that's true. What I think I did contribute that was new about Franklin was that I think I've given a very good description and analysis of what the British didn't like about Franklin. Mm. You see, I think the, the, the thing about Franklin was that he, he was a brilliant man, a very brilliant man, a scientific genius, great diplomat, very good writer, mm-hmm. and, and an entrepreneur too. I mean, he was an exceptional character. Mm-hmm. But for that very reason, I'm afraid to say that he became what I would call persona non grata with the British government in 1772, 3 and 4. Mm. The trouble was, he was, from a British point of view, Franklin was just too clever. Mm-hmm. What the British couldn't cope with was the idea of, of, of someone who was as clever as Franklin was, but had not come from an aristocratic or genteel background. It was very hard for them to cope with the notion that you could mm-hmm. be a brilliant man, a man as brilliant as Franklin, and didn't come from privilege. Hmm. And so what happened was that he and the British government during 1772, 3, 4 to 5, they gradually kind of drifted apart from each other. And there came this terrible moment in the January of 1774 when the, the, the British government effectively subjected Franklin to this kind of terrible public humiliation. And that was a terribly dangerous thing to do because once the news of that arrived in America, quite rightly, especially in Philadelphia, his hometown, right. the Americans were very, very upset about the kind of insults that had been meted out to Perhaps the most famous American of all of all time. 
Do you, you know, I got, I, I got a personal question here. Um, you said you live in the country outside of London, uh, your yep. wife and the dogs, and, and I, I'm, I'm there right now. I'm walking right there. I'm, I could be in a Sherlock Holmes uh, uh, book right now. But, <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I, I'm, ser- I'm serious. Um, and, I, and I love, I absolutely, I, I grew up uh, on the East Coast, Connecticut. Uh, my father was a gallery artist. He was a watercolorist. And um, uh, on the cover uh, of your book here, uh, we see uh, the famous painting of the Battle of Lexington. And um, so as a, there's a reason for this question, but do you, having the soul that you have, having the background and history and interests that you have, do you appreciate artwork? Well, yes, of... well, I do. I mm. do. And in fact, I mean, mm. if, if you, when, you, when you come to read the book, I mean, what, what people will find is that I do try to visualize every single chapter. Yes. Whenever I'm writing any chapter, uh, yes. and I'm writing about any particular episode, I try to visualize it in as comprehensive and, and as graphic and as detailed a way as I can. The big influence on my writing, actually, though, is not so much visual art as cinema. I, you know, I, I'm, you know I, what I try to do is I try to construct each individual chapter and each episode in the book in the way that you might do so if you were a film director. Mm-hmm. And when I say a film director, I mean, you know, really great cinema. So, for example, the, the opening passages of the book, uh, An Empire on the Edge, are actually kind of, to some extent, inspired by the great John Ford film, The Searchers. Mm-hmm. Because if you're trying to write about the American landscape, you know, at, at the end of the day, you keep coming back to John Ford. Mm-hmm. You know, John Ford, who, who made these magnificent movies in which the American landscape is always front and center. And I, and I, I like to watch John Ford's movies uh, before I write a chapter. And there are other chapters in the book which were inspired by other film directors. Um, you know, there's a chapter in the book, for example, which was, 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 was influenced by my watching of uh, the Italian film director Visconti. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, there's one particular chapter that is inspired by his film called The Leopard. So, so actually... For me, you know, as a writer, I think cinema is, is much more of an inspiration than anything else. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because uh, you gave quite the same answer as Jeffrey Deaver did. Um, I've, I've interviewed Jeffrey Deaver. Um, I like his work because he's, he's out of his mind. He's sick. Um, but he writes, he writes in storyboard like you. London in January, ice in the river, weeks of frost and then of heavy rain. But a city looking forward to the pleasures of the season – Nick, that is a picture right there. That is cool. You do well. Write. Well, well, that particular that particular paragraph, that opening of that chapter, of course, comes from somewhere else. That was inspired by the opening of Dickens. Dickens's novel Bleak House. Now wow. you see again. You see, uh, apart from the mm. cinema, the other great influence on me is Charles Dickens. I mean, mm. you know, let's be clear about this. I mean, if you are an English writer like I am, Dickens and Shakespeare are the two authors you have to keep on going back to. Mm. You know, they are the two greatest authors in the English language: William Shakespeare and Charles Dickens. What I again I do is I, I often turn to Dickens. I turn to novels like Bleak House or David Copperfield or Little Dorrit, and I use those again to kind of inspire me when I'm writing. Hmm. And, that, and that particular section there is, you know, quite frankly, uh, that, that particular section you mentioned, London Ice and River, that comes straight out of Dickens' Bleak House. It does, huh? Crazy. I never read Dickens. Yeah, well, um, you and I have to differ about that because I think Dickens is, uh, you know, is incomparably the greatest British novelist. And, you know, just, just the other week, for example, my wife and I were down in, in, in Kent, and mm. I went to go on a little pilgrimage to go and see the house where Dickens lived. It's a lovely house. And, uh, <laughs> you know, that's the extent to which I revere Dickens. A little cottage type thing or a big house? Oh, no, big. No, nobody was very successful author. I mean, he made a lot of money. 
He had a great big house uh, just outside mm. of a town called Ross, about 30, 40 miles from London. Wow. And he had this wonderful house. And the other thing that Dickens had was, of course, he didn't just have a house. He had this kind of a, a writing pavilion. He used to work. A lot of his work he did in this kind of um, pavilion or summer house located just across the street. And in order to get to the summer house, he actually dug a tunnel underneath the street. And the tunnel is still there. So he would go down into the tunnel, walk down the steps, and, and climb up the other side, and, and there would be his writing pavilion. Oh, and, uh, you know, he was, uh, he, was, he was a bit of an eccentric Dickens and uh, mm. a bit of a celebrity. And, you know, he was uh, yeah, a very colorful character. And as I say, I think, you know, incomparably the greatest of all British novelists. What I meant to say earlier was I could not understand or get through Shakespeare at all. Just the language itself. I just don't understand it. I mean, well, I, I yeah, understand if, your if, book. If you're, but. Well, the thing about Shakespeare is this. If, if you're like me, if you're a British, a British person like me, and, mm. and, you, were, and, you, and, you, and you grew up yeah, yeah, in the yeah. 60s and 70s and 80s, yeah. we were sort of soaked in Shakespeare. I yeah. mean, not only did we read Shakespeare at school endlessly, but we went to see Shakespeare's plays, uh, pretty much all of them at one time or another. And so it's kind of it's part of the air you breathe, so to speak. And yeah, Shakespeare clearly does influence my writing a huge amount. I mean, I'm often I find that sometimes sentences I write have a kind of a rhythm and a cadence and mm -hmm. a, and the vocabulary to them which. Hmm. somehow or other has been influenced by something I saw in Shakespeare. This is why I like talking to you guys, because you guys are smart, uh, you think differently, um, and I, I, I just get a kick out of learning. And in the very short time we've talked here, I've learned actually quite a bit. Well, um, Nick Bunker, An Empire on the Edge, How Britain Came to Fight America, a uh, very well put together book um i'd like to i'd like to study up a little bit more on what i know and maybe get back to you actually i'd like i'd like to talk to you about your uh, your other book um down the road uh making haste from babylon because I, I i think that could be pretty cool is it written similar to this here nick or uh, yes i mean I, I personally i think that emperor on the edge is a much better book than making haste from babylon mm. making haste from babylon was a book that yeah mm -hmm. that was my first book and it was um it was a bit of a labor of love. I mean, I enjoyed writing it, but I think mm -hmm. it was a bit self-indulgent to make it Hashem Babylon, whereas I think Empire on the Edge is, is a much more hmm. efficiently written book, shall we say. Well, listen, as a 56-year-old writer, British writer, <laughs> I, I, I think you're doing pretty good. <laughs> oh, man. No, this was fun, Nick. I I wish I had a couple more minutes. Because... Uh, <laughs> I love I love uh, uh, your humor. You know, I, I was chatting to Lee Child a couple months ago, and uh, uh, when when I uh, listen, uh, when you pick, when you called in, I heard your voice. Uh, it brought me back to Lee Child. I you guys are you guys are different types of no 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 no. It's a compliment, honestly. You guys are different type of no, Nick. T I'm serious. You guys are intriguing. You look at life a little bit differently than. Uh, than a uh, 61 year old from Connecticut. <laughs> so, um, well, well, I feel very flattered. I'm no, no, I'm, 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 no, I'm, I'm, I'm serious. You know, I, uh, my yeah. brain works in one way, baby, and uh, you know, uh, thank God I've uh, accepted that in myself. Anyway, <laughs> folks, we're get, we're getting off key a little bit. Um, uh, Empire on the Edge. Nick Bunker, a great read, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, all you history buffs, you need to pick this book up. It's pretty, pretty cool. Okay. Nick, thank you very much. <laughs> well, thank you, Greg. I really enjoyed that. Well, thank you. Thank you. I enjoyed it, too. Bye-bye. <laughs> okay. Wow. Bye. Wow. Wow. I like this guy.